Good morning, Hicks and Prez. Uh, here we are again together while we are apart, um, doing this again. But I uh, have been excited to see that a plan has been put into place that we are thinking about and moving toward the reopening of our country. So uh, having a little light at the end of the tunnel, I don't know when we will be able uh, to be together in this room again, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I'm excited that we are at least moving in the right direction at this point. So uh, as we gather this morning, we uh, are working our way through a series in the book of Romans, going uh, verse by verse through the book, and we find ourselves this morning in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bible to those verses, Romans 1, verses 18 to 21. And hear then the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain. It is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we gather to you this morning. We know that you are in all places at all times, that you are omnipresent, and that you are with each and every one of us. And so we come to you and ask that you might open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, that you would speak it to us in power, that we would have not only understanding, but that we would be moved, changed, captured by your word. Uh, that our lives would be conformed to the truth of it, to the glory and the honor of your name. For we ask and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> We're in the middle of a pandemic, COVID-19, pandemic that has come home personally for us. It's causing isolation and fear and uncertainty and death, economic hardship and other kinds of hardship that we can make a long list of. But the Bible reminds us, and I'm reminded this morning, that there are things that are worse than sickness and death. There is an ignorance of God that is a, a plague much worse than anything that could be visited upon us. If one is allowed to speak of an upside or a silver lining to something as devastating as the global pandemic that we have endured, it might be this, simply that many people are being awakened spiritually. That many people are thinking about life and death. That they're thinking about God. And that is a good thing. Many people are confronting the deeper needs of their souls, they're searching for meaning, they're searching for hope, and so they are awakening to the reality, to the fact 
of God. We live so fast and we're so busy. Our hearts and our minds are cluttered and distracted and we rarely think deeply about some of these important questions. We rarely think deeply about God and the, and the realities, the deeper and the bigger realities of life because we're too engrossed and too engaged in the daily run of things. But all of a sudden we have found the foundations are shaking. All of a sudden the life is filled with this uncertainty. There's a physical uncertainty and a fear about life itself and there's an economic earthquake and uncertainties that go along with that. All of a sudden the foundations are shaking and at the very same moment, for many of us, not everyone, but for many of us, life too has slowed down. It's stopped. <laughs> and it's created time and space for many of us to think and to feel in ways that we don't always have time to. To think about life. To think about its meaning. About the possibility of its ending. About the certainty of it ending at some point. And so the larger questions of the meaning of life and what it's all about. And where do we find hope? <laughs> and this is a good thing. These thoughts are important. They, it is a good thing. And I hope that this renewed spiritual awareness and these larger questions of life and maybe even some of the slower pace would be part of the new normal that we come out of this time with. That some of the more important things find their way back into the center of our lives and our thinking. Now, as I think about preaching this morning, one of the main goals in preaching is to show what the Bible says. It's to show people what the Bible says. To open it up. And to bring people into it and to walk through it, to understand it. In other words, to let God, because here is where God speaks, it's to let God speak for Himself into the hearts and minds of His people. To speak out of His Word. The Bible is God's self-revelation. It's in the Bible that God reveals Himself. His work through history from the creation of the world until its ending. He's revealing Himself and His work in creation and through history, through Christ, and into the present moment. And here God is revealing Himself and making Himself known to us. And then He, he speaks to us and He tells us the truth. The truth about Himself. The truth about the world. The truth about ourselves. Things we need to know and to understand. He is a God who speaks and He speaks because He has created us to know Him. We were made in the image of God. And one reason that we're made in His image, not necessarily a physical image, but in the image in terms of our intellectual and moral and spiritual capacities, is that there is some correspondence between us and the God who made us. Some small correspondence that enables us to have a relationship with Him. That enables us to know Him. We were created to know Him with the capacity to know Him. And there's no greater sickness that could plague humanity than to not know the God who made us. To not know Him. 
the best way to listen to sermons is to have your Bible open in front of you. And so if you're tuning in, <clears throat> if you have a Bible in your house somewhere, I encourage you to go find it and open it to Romans chapter 1. It's toward the end of the Bible, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. We're going to walk through them. And I would encourage you to follow along with me. So in Romans 18, we just read it. Romans 1, verse, starting in verse 18, we just read it. It tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth and we'll see that that is ultimately the truth about Him. And that, that wrath is being revealed. And so what the passage reminds us is that one of God's attributes is wrath, is anger against sin and against all unrighteousness, against all of that which is opposed to Him and out of accord, out of sync with Him. Now I know that the wrath of God is not a popular topic. It's not something that people are talking about all the time or want to talk about. Like death, it's one of those topics that we tend to avoid. But it's a Bible topic. God talks about it. And because God talks about it, we should talk about it at least a little bit. And so we talk about it a little bit this morning. You know, I hear people say that the fact that God is love, the fact that God is merciful and kind and that He is gracious, I hear them say that because God is love and He is those things, it, that that is incompatible with the idea that God is angry or wrathful. They think He must be one or the other. And that's just simply not true. It's not true biblically. We can read it here. It's the Bible that tells us both of those things. That God is love and that God is gracious and that God is angry and that God is wrathful against sin and unrighteousness. The Bible tells us it's so, but we know it's so in our own selves. We don't say that I am either loving or I'm angry. I'm both of those things on different days at different times in different circumstances. There are times I'm angry and sometimes that is a righteous anger. There are things in life that should make us angry, that are wrong. There are times when our love should overflow and be clear. And it's not incompatible for those things to exist in the same person. To understand God's wrath, we have to put it in context. And so let me put it in the context real quickly of a couple of things. Number one, we need to understand God's wrath as judicial. And number two, we need to understand that God's wrath is nothing like human anger. It is judicial, and it's not anything like human anger, right? So first, God's wrath is judicial. God is a judge. He is just. Part of his character not only is loving, but he is just and right and perfect. And he loves what is good, and he loves what is right, and he hates injustice, and he hates what is evil and what is wrong, and all that is contrary to him in his nature, in his holiness. And so God's wrath is judicial because he is judge of the world that he has created. And he administers justice. And the Bible is so clear that there is a day coming when that justice 
will be meted out, that there will be a reckoning. We read it all over the Scripture. I just picked one place in Psalm 96, 13, where it says that the Lord, Yahweh, God, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, in justice. He'll do it right. Sometimes human judges get it wrong because they don't know all things and they're not always as wise as we want them to be. But when He comes to judge the world, He will judge it and He will judge it in righteousness because He knows all things and He is wise and He is good. And He'll judge the people all of us, and faithfulness. Faithfulness to His justice. God is judge of all the earth. You have to imagine perhaps a courtroom. Think of a courtroom on the day of a big trial. And if you come into the room and you see the, the, the seats are all filled with family, families of the victim, families perhaps of the accused, There's family and spectators and reporters that fill the room. You see up front the tables. There's a a table in the front with the defendant and his lawyers. And opposite him, there's a table with the prosecutors who are presenting their case. You see the judge robed in black, seated usually high and lifted up above everybody else. He's up at his bench, sitting above everyone else ordering his court, judging the case. We imagine that the defendant has committed some terrible crime. And if you use your imagination, you can think of some terrible crimes. And then he committed a terrible crime and, and there were eyewitnesses and maybe it was even caught on a security camera and and it's caught on camera and there are eyewitnesses and there's DNA evidence and it's one of those cases that's open and shut. And it's clear that the person is guilty. The judge doesn't have to be all-knowing to know. The evidence is overwhelming. He is guilty as sin. Pun intended. Guilty as sin. Everyone knows it. Can you imagine the judge smiling and dismissing the defendant and setting him free and saying that he wants to be known as a loving and gracious judge? How would your heart respond? What if, the, what if the defendant committed his crime against your family, someone in your family? And how does your heart respond? Do you want the judge to let his loving and kind disposition cause him to be unjust? Cause him to dismiss justice? To let him go? Our hearts cry out. We say, no, No, the full wrath of the law should be released against this man. Whatever justice is in the law should be brought down upon his head. That is justice. Evil should be punished. All of us have a sense of justice. And all of us have a sense of the wrath of the law and its goodness and its rightness in the right place at the right time. J.I. Packer says, as a reaction to sin, God's wrath is an expression of His justice. It is the proper judicial response 
to sin and unrighteousness. It's a good thing. It means there is accountability. That the things that go on in this world, there will be reckoning. There will be justice. It matters. It matters what we do. It matters that we either live in ways that please God or don't. In right ways versus evil in unjust ways. It means God's wrath means there is a moral fabric to our universe. A moral fabric that there is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is evil. And there is justice. Wrath of God is His pure and perfect antagonism to all that is evil and wrong. God is loving. God is love. But He is also wrath. The Bible says in another place, our God is a consuming fire. And His wrath against sin and injustice is perfect. Perfectly just and appropriate. Now let's be clear also, though God's wrath is nothing like human anger. It's never impulsive. It is never self-indulgent. It's never irritable. It is never like the way we get angry. God knows all things perfectly. God is wise and He is just. And His wrath against sin is the just and measured an appropriate response to sin. The Bible calls it his wrath. Jai Packer again says, wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. It is a reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of his moral perfection. What kind of God would he be? If he tolerated evil and injustice, just as that judge, what kind of judge would he be? If he tolerated evil and injustice and dismissed it, we want a just judge. We want an honest judge. We want a good judge. And that means we want a judge who will level the full wrath of justice against evil when it is appropriate. Let us also notice in the passage then that what provokes God's anger, at least one of the clear things it does, is suppressing the truth. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And part of what makes them ungodly and unrighteous is that they suppress the truth. Right there in the text, they suppress the truth about God. Who he is, his reality. They either deny his existence and so go their own way and do what they want to do, or they ignore his existence and rebel and live their own way. But either way, there is a suppressing the truth. It's the truth of who he is and is his existence. But more than that, who he is, his character, is the moral fabric of the universe. He's created a world that reflects his holiness and His goodness and His rightness. And when we live in ways that are opposed to God's character, 
who he is and how he has made the world. They suppress the truth by living against God out of harmony with him. And so in verses 19 and 20, it says that God has clearly made himself known. That he has revealed himself to us. In 19 and 20, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, to us, because God has shown it to them. When did he show it to us? Well, he's shown it to us in his word, but according to the text, other than this specific revelation, there's a general revelation of him. He says, for what can be known about God is plain because he's shown it to us for in for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That in the very creation itself, our existence and our life in this world, in our experience of this world, and in the world that he has made, it says his fingerprints are all over it. God has plainly revealed himself, he says. It has been made plain to us. His divine attributes, his power, and his glory are declared and screamed across creation. He universally is showing himself to every human being a sense of his power and his glory. Psalmist in Psalm 19 says it this way, verses 1 and 4, he said, The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the very end of the world. Creation is speaking, and it speaks across the entirety of the creation and of the universe, and it screams and declares the glory of the One who made it. So many ways. The heavens declare, the earth declares. I was doing some reading and there were so many things I wanted to put in here and to talk about the way that God reveals himself in his creation from the bugs, the, the bombardier beetle who has two separate chemicals in his body that he stores separately, but in the right moment when he needs it, he can spew them out together simultaneously and perfectly so that they join together in a, an explosion that attacks his enemy and protects him in such a way that it never injures the beetle. The balance, the glory, the wonder of it. We live on an earth that apparently is seven septillion tons. I don't even know how to begin to figure out what that number it has so many zeros we don't know. This earth that is seven septillion tons suspended in space, unsupported, Spinning at a thousand miles an hour on a perfect tilt, a perfect axis of 23 and a half degrees to give us four seasons and, and the life that we experience on, on earth. It's spinning at a thousand miles an hour on this axis, all the while hurtling through space at a thousand miles a minute on, an, on a trajectory and on a orbit that goes 580 million miles to give us one year. And it does it around a ball of burning gas. 
that gives life to the whole planet. You can look down at your hands and the wonder of how they are made and how they work and the intricacies of them, the whole body and its systems, whether it's the lymph system or the circulatory system or the nervous system and the, the brain that no computer can match and the eye, the wonder of how it works. In every part of us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, the human body, the human machine. As I was writing part of this sermon yesterday on my deck, it was a beautiful spring day. And the breeze was blowing in the trees, and I'm sitting there writing these things. And, and the breeze is in the trees, the trees that are robed in this brilliant new green of the spring, waving in the breeze. I'm listening to the sound of the leaves as they wave against the azure sky, the color of a sky that cannot even be duplicated or reproduced in our paint. We try, but the, the beauty of the colors, the glory of the day, the wind in my face, the sound in the leaves, the breeze smelled like spring. And it just struck me, just even our own capacity to experience beauty, glory, to taste and see the glory of God in all that is made. And it leads us to worship not the created things, but we follow the sense of its beauty and glory. We follow it back to the one who made it and ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. The sense that we have of love and of justice, those things that we know and want in God, and we know that God is love, and we know that he is justice, and we, we have a sense of those things in our world. Why? Because they are in God. The sense of love, it makes no sense if we came from nowhere, and we're going nowhere, and we're just sacks of random accidental chemicals in a world that is meaningless and arose out of nothing and will end in nothing makes no sense that sense of love and of justice and of beauty and of right and of wrong the sense we know there is a God who has made us we know it says he says we know Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Although they knew, we know. And so the worst thing that we can do is suppress that truth. The wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of these things, and the glory of the Creator, and the fabric of the universe He has made, which is moral, because it's like Him. To suppress the truth and to deny and to ignore the knowledge of God. To suppress, the word there means to, to hold back and to restrain or to, you know, to push down to not let the truth of God have the impact 
on our lives, our hearts, and our minds that it should have. The knowledge that there is a God and that he has made the world and there's this moral fabric to the creation and there's a glory to it and there's a glory to him and that he is, that he exists and that he is holy and he is righteous and good to suppress the knowledge of God and to live as if there is no God. To live as if you're your own God. And you make your own moral fabric and you decide what is right and wrong. This is the very sin of Adam and Eve. She took the fruit and ate it because she wanted the knowledge of good and evil in the sense of she wanted to be able to judge for herself. And this is the sin that we continue in to judge for ourselves rather than to come under his judgment. What God has said. The truth of God's existence, his power, and his glory, they change everything. The truth of it, if it's not suppressed, the truth of it changes everything. And it, and it takes our lives and pulls it up into it. Your life becomes part of something bigger than yourself. It should lead us to a deeper pursuit of truth and the pursuit of the God who made us, His glory and His worship. And, and instead, in verse 21, he says, the world has gone its own way. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They did not give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking like Adam and Eve who wanted to have their own sense of right and wrong, to live for themselves, to, you know, to think of put themselves first and to live and ignore God. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. God is also, the Bible says, light. He is love and he is justice and he is, he is light in whom there is no darkness at all. And when we suppress the truth of the God who is light, it says our foolish hearts and minds are darkened. And we live our lives wandering around like we're in a dark room, bumping into things, tripping over things, and getting it all wrong. We were made to worship Him, to honor Him, and to give thanks to Him, to know Him, that He created us, and He created us with the ability to know Him. And so we were created to have this relationship with our Creator, to know Him and to love Him and to walk with Him in ways that are consistent with His character and who He is, to live before Him, to worship Him, not only with our words, but with our lives. We were created for it. And so we can deny God as much by our actions as our, with, with, with our words. When we live in ways that ignore him and offend him, we are suppressing the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. And our hearts are where we really live. We can say, oh, I believe in God. Oh, there's a God. And then our hearts are with ourselves. We live for ourselves. We love ourselves. Our hearts do not belong to Him. Our worship does not belong to Him. And we go about our own way and our own business. When they should belong to Him, and so we should not only honor Him with our lips, which we should do, but our hearts should be close, drawn to Him in love and in worship. There are many who say they believe in God, but they refuse to live in accordance with the truth. 
And they ignore His Word and they ignore His ways. And the more we live in ways that are contrary, suppressing the truth, the more we dishonor our Creator. They did not honor Him as God. And they did not give thanks to Him as God. And it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all this unrighteousness and wickedness that suppress the truth of Him and live in defiance of Him. The great question, my friends, is when we know the truth about God, will we obey it? When we know the truth about God, will we suppress it? Or will we obey it? Will we submit our life to the truth of God, who He is and what He has done. And so as we wrap up, I want to wrap up talking just about several ways that we are to honor God and to thank Him. Right? Because that's in the text what is not being done. That is what is coming under His judgment, His just and right judgment. And so we are to honor Him and to give thanks to Him. And we do it in several ways. And let me just run through three quickly. We honor Him when we worship Him as Creator. As the Lord and the King and the Judge. We, we honor Him when we return to Him the glory that is due His name. When we recognize His handiwork in creation and, and in our creation in the fearfully and wonderfully way that, we, way that we are made. We honor Him when then our worship flows back to Him. Our love, our response. We worship not just with our lips, but with our hearts and with our lives. We don't just say we believe in a God, we live as if there is a God. We live as if there is this God, the God of the Bible. Not just with our lips, but our hearts and our lives in conformity to the truth of Him. And when our hearts can truly cry out, as Paul does in 1 Timothy 1.17, he says, To the King of ages, who sits enthroned above time, who created with time, who stands outside of time, to the King of the ages, who is immortal and invisible, the only God, be honored. Right? They did not honor Him as God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Is that the expression of your heart? That is how the heart responds when it knows the only true God, the Maker of all things. Paul says it again later in 1 Timothy in chapter 6, 15 and 16. He says, who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, the Eternal One, the Living One. And He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. To Him be honor. To Him be honor. And woe to those who do not honor Him as God, but suppress this glorious truth to Him be honor and eternal dominion and glory. Has God's revelation of Himself gripped your heart and caused it to worship? We honor Him 
And we honor Him and worship Him as Creator. <clears throat> and we honor Him. Secondly, we honor Him when we acknowledge that we owe Him our lives and our obedience. He has made us. And He has made us and a world with a moral fabric. With, with a fabric in a way that reflects who He is in His character. What is right and what is good. And we honor Him when we acknowledge that we owe Him then, the one who made us. We owe Him our obedience in our lives. The wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, has this line, I don't think I couldn't say it better, so I just pulled it up. Were the whole realm of nature mine, it would be a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands it demands my soul, my life, my all. It demands the surrender of myself to the one who owns me already, the maker of heaven and earth. We honor God and give thanks to Him by aligning our lives with the truth, the way we live our lives in accordance to His Word and His ways. We honor Him when we live in obedience to His Word, in harmony with His character. And finally, we honor Him. We honor Him when we respond in the honor and the worship that is due His name. And we honor Him when that worship trickles its way down into the way that we live. We honor Him when we acknowledge that we owe Him our lives and our obedience. And we finally, we honor Him when we embrace His Son, the Lord Jesus. The only one who can deliver us from the wrath that is described in this passage, the just anger of God against our sin. See, as we talked about that wrath coming against all unrighteousness and sin, if you didn't do it yourself, let me do it for you now. Is to put yourself in that category. Because we think and say and do things that are contrary to the God who made us every day. We find ourselves in rebellion, forgetting and ignoring our God. And we honor Him when we embrace the fact that He has made a way for us to be delivered from His wrath. We do not fully understand the people who want to say God is love and God is grace and God is mercy. But here's the thing, you cannot fully understand His grace and His love and His mercy until and unless you first understand the wrath from which it saves us. God's wrath is the context in which we experience mercy and grace. Stars shine brightest against a black sky. And the grace of God in Jesus Christ shines brightest against the black backdrop of His wrath, His just right wrath. First Thessalonians 1.10 says this, We wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, which we just celebrated, in Easter, 
We wait for this same Son from heaven who was raised and glorified and ascended. We wait for Him to come back. This Son whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Jesus who delivers us. Jesus lived the life that you and I failed to live. That life in harmony with God's Word and His ways. In harmony with the the Holy and Righteous One who created all things. We fail to live that life. God sent His only Son. He came in the person of Jesus to live the life we failed to live and to offer that perfect life as a sacrifice in our place to bear the wrath we deserve, to pay the penalty for our sin, And because he bore the wrath in his own body. So that we don't have to. That when our faith and our trust is in Christ. Then what he did, he did for me. He bore the wrath. He endured the shame. He paid the price. And through faith in him we are set free from the wrath. And this is what makes Christmas so awesome. God became a man to deliver us from the wrath to come. This is what makes Good Friday good because it was on the cross that Jesus bore God's just wrath against our sin and rebellion. It's what makes Easter a triumphant and glorious celebration because Jesus in His resurrection has conquered sin, death, and the devil and has put to rest the wrath of God. And he has risen into the very presence of God, where by faith we too may stand. It is against this dark backdrop of God's wrath that we see the glory of Christ. The one who delivers us from the wrath. And we truly honor God and thank Him when we embrace the Lord Jesus by faith as our Savior, as the sent one, the one whom the Father has given that we may be delivered. And it honors Him because it says we understand your righteousness and holiness and the way you have made things with the moral fabric. And we understand that your wrath is just and appropriate. And it's against us. And we understand that you have made a way that we can be delivered from it. And we honor him and we thank him by embracing him. The Lord Jesus putting our faith and our trust in him. Our only hope in life and in death. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one escapes the wrath except through me. No one can stand in the presence of the judge and call him Father except those who've embraced the Lord Jesus, who have satisfied justice and the wrath of God on our behalf. No one comes except through me. The way has been opened. The way back to the presence of our Creator without fear. One of God's attributes is wrath the appropriate expression of His justice. But when we come to know God through Jesus Christ, then you will experience the love and the grace and the mercy of God toward us. Only in Christ. No one comes to the Father but through me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us enough 
that even when we came under your wrath, when we deserved your judgment, that in your mercy you made a way that we might be delivered from it. That you sent your only Son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, would not come under wrath, but would have life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his life and his death and what he did for us, and we would embrace it. To the honor and glory of your name, we would embrace the Lord Jesus as our own, as our King and as our Savior. Father, we thank you that your love and your mercy and your grace come to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.